Now entering Nerdist.com. Hi, everyone. This is Ben Blacker, the creator and usually moderator of the Nerdist Writers Panel. Uh, thanks so much for downloading this episode. Hodgman and Patton were kind enough to let me record this chat that they had uh, last week in New York at Barnes & Noble, uh, and I think you will find it enjoyable. I certainly did. Patton's book... Silver Screen Fiend is out now. You should check it out. It's really great. The guy is not only hilarious and thoughtful, uh, but he's a really good writer. If you know and love Patton, you'll know and love you'll love the book. Uh, and if you love movies, you'll love the book. There's a lot of really cool stuff in there that gets to what it is to be a fan of movies and to have grown up watching movies. So I think you'll enjoy it. And John Hodgman is, of course, a wonderful moderator uh, in this event. I do need to thank, in addition to John and Patton. Rachel Berkey, who was my man on the ground there, she was kind enough to go out and record this for me. So thank you, Rachel. You were a lifesaver. I appreciate it. And, of course, to everyone at Barnes & Noble in Union Square, everyone who works there. The only other thing I have for you guys is to say that many of you have gotten in touch with me about transcribing episodes, which I really appreciate. I still need lots more transcriptions done. So if you're interested in transcribing some episodes of the Nerdist Writers Panel, I have a lo- whole list for you to choose from. Um, this is for a project related to the podcast. Uh, send me an email at nerdistwriters at gmail.com. Um, there is no compensation for this other than my undying gratitude and, and probably your name in public somewhere. But, you know, you have Twitter, so your name is in public all the time. Anyway, that's nerdistwriters at gmail.com if you're interested in transcribing episodes for me. We strive to every week bring you this free podcast and keep it at a high standard. So thank you for listening. If you do enjoy it, well, you could do a transcription. But if you enjoy it but don't want to do a transcription, uh, please leave a review on iTunes. Uh, those are always very helpful to the ratings and all that, and it's good for nerds, and it's good for A26LA, and it's good for my ego, which uh, often needs a boost. As ever, thank you for listening. Please enjoy this conversation between John Hodgman and Patton Oswalt. It's the Nerdist Writers Panel, and it's hosted by Ben Blecker, where he gets a bunch of writers, and he asks them lots of questions, and it's starting now, so this will be the end of the theme. Awkward walking on stage with your own book, like a spider. We got it! It's happening, people! They're for sale here. And you dig it!
casual, offhand thing at the end of a, a, a lot of your brilliant jokes that you make, that perform. He said, now I'm going to go drink some victory gin and kill a troll. And I was so, that rang the bell of my brain so hard because that is a reference to 1984, the book, and impossibly grim film. Yes. And, uh, and I was very excited by it for two reasons. One, love gin. <laughs> and I, and I, love, I love all cultural references so much. Wow. So, I'm so excited by cultural references all the time. I got chocolate in your pizza. And to a guy who was at that time sitting down and writing a list of 700 hobo names, <laughs> eight or nine of which were just the names of the Skeksis from the Dark Crystal. <laughs> This was deep. This was deep medicine for me. Wow! Because in 2004, in comedy, this is not a thing that happened all the time. Cultural references were not the debased coins that we were all trading with each other on Twitter instead of jokes in order to get stars. They were deployed very seldomly in comedy, and in comedy in particular, where everything was supposed to be so universal. But I was hearing something so specific to you, uh, and. You know, the stories, right? Whether they're yeah. uh, um, jokes or TV shows or books or movies, in this case, uh, are some of the ways we define who we are. And uh, they define, they give substance to our past, they shape our ambition, and when we reach the end and we confront nothingness, they trick us into believing that it was meaningful somehow. And I, I can't follow any of this. But when you hear that someone has liked a story in the same way that you liked a story, yeah. and it's not about sports, it's so exciting. Because you feel like you're getting a transmission in a secret language. Well, the fact that you, you realize that something that you like bored its way into someone the way it did to you, yeah. you, you know there's other people who've read that book, but you don't know if it hit them and haunted them the way it wanted you. And that, Specifically the gin in that book. The gin, really? It was such a weird detail in that book. Victory gin. Victory gin. Victory gin. Would sit around and drink gin. I also realized now when you dropped that reference, I said that, I said, I'm going to go drink some victory gin and strangle a troll. I said that the way a Spike TV announcer would say it. Like, if... If Oceana had Spike TV, they had this kind of, you know, all right, get ready for the two-minute hey, you guys ready to scream? You know, like, you know, in, a way, in a way, they did. They, yeah, they kind of did have Spike TV, so. I, just, I love the fact that they, um, Julia, her job, the thing that brought me was, her job was making books, but she wasn't writing books. It was literally, it was a machine that just cranked out those porn, novels, like night nurse and stuff. Porn and, and, roles. Yeah, porn roles, and she, all she did was I think I, I can't get the right description in my head, but she just pushes a lever and books just come like it's like she's working at a at TCBY yeah. yogurt. That's not you're not publishing like at all. <laughs> oh, they go over every word. Every one of these little gems has been carefully crafted. Particularly the books by reality TV shows. Oh, yeah, it, it was it was something that was very liberating to think. Oh, this is I'm hearing from directly inside someone's brain, yeah. and, uh, and 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 it meant a lot to me. And it freed me up to tell my publisher, no, the sexy things stay in goddamn Some weird child is going to be very happy that they understood that. And I've met a few of them there. Yeah. <laughs> I regret it now. <laughs> yeah. 
and all those weird children are 53. So, but I had not appreciated until I mean I knew that you were incredibly versed in all kinds of things. Comedy, obviously, uh, we've talked in the past a lot about uh, fiction, both high and medium and low. Yeah. Um, I, and of course, movies. But I always thought, I was like, of course he loves movies. But I didn't understand how much you loved movies and how much your love of movies almost ruined your life. Yeah. Specifically between the four years, or during the four years, uh, which you recount very lovingly and, and hilariously and, and touchingly in this book. Yeah, the, the four years, ni 1995 to 1999, when I moved to L.A. and discovered the new Beverly Cinema, where you could see two double features a night. Which I now, now that I've, there's, a, there's a documentary you should see called Cinemania, I think some of you have seen that, about five New York City film freaks, and they put me to shame. In there, because they're there, but what they were is they just committed all the way to having their lives obliterated by movies. Whereas I got close and then I pulled back, like I was really close and I said, No, I can't just, you know, so it, it, but I do get close to that, you know, brain melting down, can't talk to people anymore. To give people a sense, the, 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 fir the first double feature that you were count going to see was uh, Sunset Boulevard. And uh, Ace in the Hole. Yeah. And uh, Wilder Double Feature. Yeah. That'll hook you hard. I, uh, you, you, I have not seen either of those movies. I have. And he talked as the as the, the gentleman purple who thinks it, it's all the show. Anyone else right now? Anyone else right now? You've never seen those movies? Oh my God, that's what I go into. I go into the hole. You haven't seen those? I know. And I just. I wanted to see your reaction when I told you. Holy but it's crap. absolutely true. And indeed, I started watching Sunset Boulevard in order to avoid writing this question. And, uh, and then I said, no, I'm not going to. And I love movies, and I worked in a movie theater. Your descriptions of, a, of what a movie theater smells like and feels like and, and the, that putrid sweet smell of the, of the of like just it's I think you described it as being just slightly more sickly and delicious. Yeah. And the and the dark and the cold dark, the abyssal dark he's, just, he's a very good writer, you guys. There's so many lines in this. I like, like words putting on paper. How did he do how did he do this? It's, it's, it's amazingly written book. And, and I love movie theaters. I've worked in movie theater. I've worked in a movie uh, at a video store. And I, I it was in, in New Haven when I was in oh, Yale. Okay. For the film fest video on Chapel Street. Did you stop by? Or? I never made it to film fest, but I can't and I, I, I absorbed, I've absorbed a lot of movies, but that, those were two, and many of the movies from this, I, ne I, never, I never saw. Well, can I tell you one way that I matured? It, it, because early in the book, I do talk about there's that you haven't seen, you know, and, and we, you were talking earlier about how you use things to connect with other people. How many people do uh, the spinal tap test on, on new friends? If they, if they like it, then they're cool. If they don't, then we can't hang out or, you know. Um, or, or the, the Princess Bride test or the Repo Man test or whatever, whatever you use to judge if someone's cool. But I have a Smile Tap Princess Bride Repo Man College. Oh, wow. <laughs> and turn it into paper? It's a three-year program. <laughs> but I, the one way that I matured was instead of, you know, the, my initial is, I, you haven't seen that, but now what I, when someone tells me they haven't seen, you know, the Red Shoes or Apocalypse Now or something like that, 
my reaction is, oh, I'm so jealous that you're going to get to experience that someday. You have that ahead of you. Yeah, I don't gonna... think I'm going to see it. Oh. <laughs> and in that case... Can we got a dent in the pool? I'm like, I get it. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> I can see where this is going. They did something like this on the season two of Nip Tuck. But there was a time, you know, I think, in, in all young weirdo dudes' lives, when they when they download a bucket of cultural data. Oh yeah. Um, and it could be movies, it could be sports. I had to say that. I'm sorry. Movies, books, or whatever. It, it's it's the same engine. It's just different fuels. Right. Yeah. The, 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 I am no different than the guy that jabbers about. Oh well, that. Excuse me, but that tight end only ran for the last season. Nothing like it's it's just arcane. Yeah. The difference is the difference is American culture treats that guy as normal. That is, yeah. He's, yeah. 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 Well, he's a regular. Human. Unlike you, weirdo. Yeah. Well, you take in so much. You, there, there's a moment in your life when you can take in so much time for it. You yes. need to take it in. And then you reach a point where because you get married or you have a job or you have other responsibilities where your brain just turns to different things where you stop. And that happened for me with movies. And then that happened with music too. Do you know what I mean? And now there's yeah. this gap and I, in fact, I, Sunset Boulevard never hit me at that time. Mm -hmm. uh, so for some reason in the past three, not three, two decades, I haven't gotten back to that old. I haven't gotten back to it. Yeah, it, it's hard. I mean, I'm just now getting back into reading the way that I used to read. Yeah. But there was a lot of time because I, is what you're talking about, I downloaded so much that I got to the point where like, I want to make some stuff, and if I want to make some stuff, I've got to choose not to keep downloading stuff. Well, let's talk about that. How much did you download? Give, give people a sense of the depravity yeah. of your life. Well, in the back of the book, there's an appendix, and you can look at, and it is like pretending and you are. Fantastic way of padding up the book. By well, it was brilliant. Thank God I had that, by the way. This would be a freaking book. Um, it's a horrible way to sell a book. Guys, this book's a total ripoff. Um, no, I, I list all of the movies that I saw during this time, and. Look at when you look at that appendix. Pretend that you are the admitting doctor at a psych ward. A national report you've been handed. Him. This is how this person um, rationed out sleep and food and relationships and love to get these things in his brain. And it's it's really sad. It's really sad. So, like, so a double feature. How many times a week did you see a double feature? At least four times a week. And those were on weeknights. And then on a weekend. I would see a couple of matinees, either of new films and then a double feature at night. And then it gets really bad when the American Cinema Tech starts up. And at the time, it was this little pirate operation that would just show at any theater that would let them. And so they only had a couple of days. They would go, we've got, we've got 14 Hammer Horror films. So we're going to show them in 48. We're just going to show them from dawn to dusk both days. And I, would do, I did that two weekends in a row. Dawn to dusk. I go to that for four hours, yeah. come back and do it all over. Was it that Hammer Horror Film Festival where you started hallucinating? That's when, I, that's when all the movies began to bleed into each other and I was imagining well, there, there, there was a dinosaur movie at one point, but in my mind, Van, Dracula was there battling the dinosaurs. And then there was a weird. I, I didn't know. That's, that, how, that's how new movies are made. That is, by the way, yeah. Dracula versus dinosaurs. Yeah. 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 Give me the dart. Dracula, give me another dart. 
dinosaurs, here we go. Yeah. So, but, um, yeah, it, it just got to the point where, and I couldn't really um, relate to people anymore. Because I just, I could only relate in terms of films and scenes. And I, my, my conversations were bar, a lot of them became borrowed lines from other movies. I would literally say that to people. I, was, I got into a fight with a guy, uh, this huge argument, I said, um, treat me as if you were dead and I can't hear you. That's how I ended it. And then I realized, oh, that's from the end of The Duelists. Early Scott's The Duelists. And I just quoted this whole thing as if I was coming up with it. Yeah, oh, that, guy, that guy today is out there in the world, still haunted. Yeah, like, kind of time breaking psycho. That was a crazy line, <laughs> Or what if someday he sees the duelist and goes, oh, boy, that guy was really nuts. Yeah. <laughs> or, or Ridley Scott's a thief. But no, there's no way, because that movie was made when I was eight, so. He's never going to see the duelist no That's true, yeah, I think fine. And you were doing comedy at the time as well. Yeah, I mean, you were, you, were doing, you were doing a lot of stand-up comedy. You moved to L.A. In, in order to become a, a comedian. And, and I treated that where I would see like a 7.30 screening, and I'm going to be doing this show, so if I get out in just this amount of time, I can make it to get on stage in time. And I realized I managed the movie addiction in a way that was no different than a, a way a guy would manage a heroin addiction or a sex addiction, or you, know, you just made space in what should have been the life you were living to get this thing in, to download. Yeah, no, I know what you're talking about, sex and heroin. Oh, yeah, that, yeah. Be French books, But yeah, so there was that kind of... I, I'm amazed I wasn't, I wasn't in a car crash during that time, I was zipping across town trying to get to meet the gigs. You talk about the first time you go to the New Beverly, some other critical moments in your life is entering your night cafe. Night cafe, yeah. And uh, I had no idea what you were talking about. <laughs> <laughs> really quickly, it was, um, there's my favorite painting of all time is Van Gogh's The Night Cafe. If you've never looked at it, go look at it. It is amazing. And it was the first thing that he ever painted from memory. He thought that, he was a religious fanatic, and he thought that his artistic side was sinful. So the way that he could balance that, I was going, well, if I just paint what I'm looking at, I'm not committing a sin. And Gauguin said, he tried painting from memory, it might unlock some new. So he, there was this, there's a cafe that he, he and Gauguin go to, and he painted it from memory, and it is, it is the most unnerving, psychotic. The first time I ever saw it, I was in a psych class. We were walking, it was a course about the art of the insane, and, and they were talking about the, the features of schizophrenic's art. So they would talk about like there's visual light sources, like you know, sound, sound waves, but light waves. There's some artistic expressions that are that are consistent among different schizophrenics. Among schizophrenics, yeah, when they paint or draw, they are their tells though where you, you can go, oh, this person might be schizophrenic. And the night cafe has all of them. It has all of them. And it's it's amazing. It was painted in the fall of 1888, which is right at the time that the Jack and Ripper murders were starting. And, I, and again, this is me now getting into a science fiction thing, but it just feels like a part of the Night Cafe, Jack the Dragon River. Yeah, the Dragon River painted Night Cafe. That's what I'm saying. That's my next book. Oh, uh, thank, you. Move, thank you very much. Move over, Bill O'Reilly. I got a whole other comparison. Um, but I was, I was like, there must be, it felt like there was something evil on the planet, like loose. Yeah. And it somehow, you know, Van Gogh, his, his antenna was wired to it. No, I have seen that painting. You have seen that painting. It is, it's very pretty. It, you think that painting is pretty? It looks, it looks like uh, you're looking inside. It looks like there's a 
there's a first cafe inside and then on that on Topsy body. They can look at the reds Ooh, and the way the walls are in I can't win on this one, can I? But he, when he entered this room in his head and came to that cafe, when he came out, that's when Star Trek Night came out and all this stuff. It changed him. It changed him, but it drove him insane. So I'm talking, and so I'm saying the night cafe is any room in your in your life. It could be an actual room or a or a metaphorical room that you enter and when you come back out of it, you're forever different. And think of what you guys do, it, 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 like creatively or. Personally, there must have been a time that there was either a book you read or a person you met that after you met them, you're like, oh, everything's different now. I'm now on a different course because I entered that. Point. You can't imagine what life is like before you no. You would have, if you hadn't met that person or entered that room or read that book or experienced whatever that was, you would be living a different life right now. And for comedy, there was a different turning point, which, well, there are a couple of them. But there's, one, yeah, there's, there's not just one night cafe in your life either, there's a bunch of them. If you look, think about your life, there's a bunch of night cafes that you've gone through. If you really think about it, you've, you've had three or four. You probably had six or seven. And, the, and the, there was the, the club in San Francisco. Yeah, that was well. That was my third night cafe. My second one was the first time I ever did stand-up. Went on stage, oh, I want to do this, this is great. And then I started, for four years, I just did stand-up on the East Coast. It was all about joke, 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 just get laughs. All that matters is that your stuff is funny. Then I moved to San Francisco, and I did a night at the Holy City Zoo. And it was when I went in, and I thought, I'm this amazing headliner now. I know, I'm a great comedian. These guys are going to be blown away. And suddenly, I'm in front of all the, at the time, the young comedian, Margaret Cho was in the room, Greg Barron, Blake Patch. Um, all these, you know, amazing, great groups was there. And I went up and did all my killer A road material to just silence. Because they, I, now what I realized was, oh, there's another level to this that I didn't realize. You know, it doesn't just have to be about um, cause and effect. It's about who's making money. And who's selling, yeah. selling jokes to trends. On the, yeah, on the East Coast, it was whoever was making the most money. They were the funniest person. They had it. Yeah, they, was, yeah, they were successful. That's how it that's yeah. how but, in, but in San Francisco, I encountered something different, and then that unlocked this hole of money that I just wanted to come out of again. So, seeing movies, that's when you moved to L.A., more or less. Yes, and then, and then in 95, I moved to L.A., and then it was that, it was a combination of now seeing movies, and then I discovered the Largo, which was the combination of, here's where you can be totally experimental, like the San Francisco Boise Zoo, but you can become insanely successful with one set. Because now it's in the room where the Fairley brothers, Paul Thomas Anderson, you know, people that could go, hey, I want to work with that guy. And Bill Farrell was there, so. And as you were getting more success as a comedian, you developed an internal connection between your success as a comedian and the number of movies that you were seeing. So sad. I, I started out, I, I started this in that magical thinking that that needs get. Like when they're we're going for the pennant, I can't change my socks because they're done. Yeah. Well, I have to say, it's really risky going after athletes in a bookstore. You see, you see, Just people who went to Brown at Yale. Yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I decided to go the, the first 
aristocrat because it was more popular. <laughs> make, make fun of Doc, and I put that in the copy of Ulysses. He nuts. It's on. Yeah. So yeah, I started to think that if I see these movies and check them off in these movie books that I had, I had all three of Danny Perry's cult films, which we should get and read. I had the Psychotronic Encyclopedia film by Michael Wellman, which is, which is basically that book is the internet before the internet existed. It's just every... It's one the books that were traded by weirdos. Exactly. Yeah, to, yeah. to clue them in to go see freaks and go, go yes. watch people dead. That's what I, I, I used to read that in a card Yeah, there you go. Yeah. And, if, and if I went and checked off the movie and put the date next to it, then I'd have a good set. It was crazy. It was and yet, there, I mean, there is something to, to ritual and creativity. Oh, absolutely. And you know what? It helped me have better sex. It was the black feather in Dumbo. If, if he held it, if, if he believed that they'd fly, or something. Then Dumbo. <laughs> Postpartum a few years ago, and she went and saw a shrink, and then and after this shrink said this thing, he became my shrink because I love what he said. He put her on some antidepressants, and she, and she saw him the next week. She goes, I've started taking these. I know they don't take effect for about six weeks, but I feel better now, and I know that that's a placebo effect. I know that this isn't real. And then he said, Who gives a shit? <laughs> It's working. Why are you questioning if it's working? And then I went, I'm going to start seeing him. Sounds like a practical. So, yes, it, I'd, like to say, I'd like to say, Doc, I know it's just a placebo. Don't worry, but could you give me a lot of Percocets? <laughs> I, I think yeah. it'll make me feel better. Yeah, also, I'm going to wear the same socks there again. <laughs> but for a while, it was helping. So, you know, it was, it was good that I wasn't smart enough to question it. But there are times when ritual becomes, uh, interferes with creativity. Ritual takes the place of risk. Ritual takes the place of, you know, well, I've done the eight same things that I do, so I don't need to do anything new now. But if you go out, like, I'm going to go up and not wear my special socks or not, and, and see if I unlock something new. It was, it was always inside of me. It was not the socks or the checking off the movies with the black feather. It was always just either I decide to do it or I don't. I remember in 2008 there was a presidential election. It was it was McCain versus Obama, I believe. Mm -hmm. And I remember John McCain talking about. I was reading a Game Change. But his whole preparation, his whole preparation for the New Hampshire primary was to wear the same sweater that he wore the previous presidential cycle when he wore when he won the New Hampshire primary. That's right. And he carried a feather in his pocket. Oh. And I was like, this, this guy should not be president. <laughs> and luckily, he will not yeah. be president just by wearing the same sweater all the time. As a comedian, you know what I knew when McCain lost? As a comedian, is during the Al is, is it the Alfred Smith dinner or the Albert Smith dinner? Alfred Smith dinner, where the, where the two presidential nominees go up and they kind of do a roast. Right. I don't know, you can go watch this on YouTube. Go watch the Alfred Smith dinner from 2008. Obama goes up, and he's okay, but, but he's not, he's funny, but he's, you can tell, he's thinking every step, and he's really trying to make sure it doesn't make wrong. But Kane goes up, 
and destroys it. He's loose and just messing with everyone in the room, doesn't care. And I'm like, as a comedian, he knows he's not going to win, so he can just relax. Because the best sets I've ever had was when it didn't matter or when someone told me, like, I, there was this night, the, the best sets I ever had was at the punchline in San Francisco back in the early 90s. Everyone was auditioning for Star Search. And so we were, I saw that. And, yeah, and every, Commentary on there by Sinbad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> These parachute pants aren't actually parachutes. Um, uh, I remember this day. I remember this day. It was cold. <laughs> so everyone had five minutes, and everybody was just, I've got to nail this. And somehow, either my manager or, or the, the club owner was like, the producers don't like you, or you're, you're not. They're not looking at you for this. Like you're not. To get this, I would have had one of the best sets because it, I was the one guy up there having fun, right? And just and I was kind of messing with everybody, and it was one of the best sets I've ever had. The producers still hated me. Sure, they didn't want Did to you get a star search. No, 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 no. no, 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 no great story. I, I just, no, no, but I went up and I, and I messed. All I did was make fun of star search. Oh, yeah. The audience loved it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the producers were like, "Why is you making fun of us?" Right. <laughs> because I had. There's nothing freer than when they're like, "You can't win." Oh well, in that case. <laughs> so when did you realize that the ritual of going to see movies all the time uh, and marking it off in the book totemically yeah. was maybe not helping your comedy career? I, I wish it was like the one moment. Or not even your comedy career, but your comedy. My comedy in my life, basically. It was um, be because I was starting to... The, the, the subjects I was going after and the way that I was going after them I was then, and I was now starting to lock in a technique of talking about it. I just had the same rhythm and voice all the time because I realized that was growing out of the ritual. Mm -hmm. um, and, and again, and it, this was all part and parcel of a much bigger, in, in, the, in the second to last chapter, it's a bunch of little kicks I had to the head. And there's never like the one moment in life. It's so cinematic to have the, I'm now changed in life. It's like you got to get it. Yeah, so if you're writing a book, but then you want to that is true. I could have made one revelation. I made it a lot more satisfying. No, it's very satisfying. It's very satisfying. Very beautifully written. Perhaps I'm carefully asked what that turning point is since you want to read the book to find out. But I will say that the, the big kick in the head had to do with um, uh, seeing The Phantom Menace. And, and I'm, not, I'm not saying this would mean Way. There, there's a, I explain it very, it's not like uh, George Lucas sucks. I actually end up coming around full circle with George Lucas at the end of this. But, sure. but the Phantom Menace really, it was the Phantom Menace, I won't say what the Phantom Menace was, but I will say um, Sherman Torrey, who owned the new Beverly, and I would go there every night for four years. He was the guy that would handle it, and he was the owner. On, I, I, the first one went there was May 20th, 1995. The last, well, not the last time, but I went there on May 20th, 1999, to see Sunset Boulevard again. And he remembered. And not the Well, no, no. What he oh. said was, his hand he goes, I thought you'd be giving me a screenplay at this point. Yeah. And that was like his way of going, you graduated. Stop. Go do something. Go. Stop. Stop. Seeing enough movies. Stop taking in culture. Start making it. Exactly. Well, it's what Matt Fraction says. Stop downloading, start uploading. It's, it's you know, David Reese 
things are just a Amazing. Amazing performer using uh, transparencies. Yeah, that's right. One of the best overhead, things I've ever seen. Overhead transparencies. <laughs> yeah. Oh. yeah. But, you know, I love cultural references so much. It's so much fun. And David had been taking a side of time. So you have to learn that making cultural references isn't the same thing as making culture. Why do you want to blow my mind and deny an entire body of work that I've created? What is this, the final episode of St. Elsewhere? <laughs> Right? You, if you were going to see these movies either in a theater or, or on a terrible VHS. Right. Which you, people would try to convince you that they're these beautiful TVs. Now, of course, we love these whole home theaters. Well, every movie that I see in this book, I, I only see them in theaters. I would not watch them on any other medium. We're now, but we're now in such a culture of cultural abundance. Yes. Where everything is immediately available. And you basically have a nice, even people of not well means have nice screening rooms in their homes now. Right. And it's really nice. And it's and it's possible to convince yourself, as so many people do, this whole idea that fandom is my art that comes up in so many right. so many fans. Yeah, so yeah. like my loving this thing is my art. Is cre- I'm doing this creatively. And look, people who do cosplay are incredible seamstresses and seamstresses. <laughs> <laughs> It should be seen straight because it's not even mass gendered. Sorry, guys. I apologize for everything. Uh, but yeah, but I need no people. But it, it, <laughs> I mean, there's something to I'm going to kind of text Jessica.com right there. <laughs> Absorbing culture is a cultural statement. Yes. And yet it's not true. You want to, what I realized was I wanted to stop referencing other things I was seeing. I wanted to create the stuff that other people reference. That's what I wanted to do. Right. You know, I wanted to do something that was fully original. So, but but again, take a back there. I mean, when I heard that Victory June thing, even back in 2004, that's what turned me into a Patton Oswald fan. That's not. I was missing the fact that that was all around beautiful constructive jokes who were making culture then. I just happened to tune into that one thing. And I've since learned that A, you're doing more than just making cultural references, obviously. B, you're not just making cultural references to Nikes, you're making cultural references about all cultures because you know everything. (laughs) Thank you. That's not true, but thank you. No, but I mean, you are a creator, and you have been every time you take the stage and make. Words out of oh yeah, I, well yes, yes and no, but a lot of that stuff is built on, hey, are we connecting already on this pop culture thing? And then, but what I realized was, I, it, especially when I was at my lowest point, I would literally go on stage and go, I'm going to list a bunch of movies I like, and I would just make snarky comments about them, but I wouldn't tie it into anything bigger or more human or, or more cosmic. So what I'm learning now, and it was, it was totally, you know, looking at 
comedians like Brian Regan and, and stuff like that where they would take very mundane things and time with way bigger cosmic ideas. That that was a big that was a big revelation. You convinced yourself that you were watching so many movies because you wanted to direct a movie. Yeah. And you haven't so far. Do you still want to? I still do. The thing is, I became a comedian by watching a lot of comedians. When I made that jump, it was just me. It fails, then it's just me failing. If I go and direct a movie, and this is a very man thing, this is a very insecure macho thing. Now I'm going to touch it. There you go. If you go down by yourself, this is I'm quoting Stephen King from the end of The Body, the the novella The Body. If you die alone, you're a hero. You take anyone down with you, you're you're a dog turd. So when I make the leap to making movies, I gotta convince other people to make a leap with me. And if it goes down, then I'm a dog turd. So there's all the time. Okay, well, I'll definitely be. I need a job. into a film, is there one that you would really love to be responsible for ushering to a, a, into a different form? Yes, but I'm a little worried about, I don't want to, there, there is a book, but I don't want to say. If I'm not, not worried your book saying stops tonight. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't want someone else to grab it. Oh, I yeah. it, it, It's a pair of short stories that together I think would make an amazing film. It's a book that came out. Are they about the same author? Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Finally, Dostoy
albums released Breakin' in 1984. It was their most successful. Was it Breakin'? Breakin'? Breakin yes, exactly. Which I know you haven't seen two, you haven't seen one. You really gotta go back and see one. Breakin' was a huge smash success. So that's the, what Marvel has just done is the equivalent of Can Canada going, let me sh let us show you uh, the next 10 years of breakdancing movies we already have planned. Now, I don't know what's gonna be going on in music in 1992. We all know breakdancing is still gonna be huge. That's why we committed hundreds of millions of dollars to this trend that's never going away. But I I'm sorry, I want them all to be but by the time we get to that, whatever that infinity gem thing is, everyone's gonna be like, I can't see another. There are just, right. there are just so many stories that can be told within the break and cinematic It's a generational story. If, if, even if you plan that out, great. Just be quiet about it. Be quiet about it. Don't announce it like that because then you're just asking for the universe to run a trouble. You're asking for an, an, an ironic train wreck collapse of your plans. That's what the universe loves to do. You should make a movie about an ironic train wreck collapse. That would be hilarious. Oh, I think that's Snowpiercer. Right? Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> Wild Wild West. <laughs> <laughs> it was amazing to 
mean that they took, it, it, it's a fascinating movie to watch only because they took maybe one of the most charming human beings on the planet, Will Smith. But whether or not you like his movie or not, he is just, he is a pure pillar of charm. And they made him so hateful in that movie. I've never seen that pulled off on that level. And to watch that much money wasted doing it, it is kind of a, you feel like you're watching something done in like uh, Desaad's court. You know, like just kind of being these people like, we tied eight midgets together and swung from it. Like, what's wrong with humanity? Like, we took the most likable person on the planet and made you want to kill him. That's, that's what the football was. Yeah, and you don't regret, like, you know, do you wish you had not seen it? Because then you couldn't tell us about it. That is true, yeah. I mean, that's, that's, I, it's very little culture that I, I regret that it. I regret that it exists. I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I really, I, I know this is a weird thing. I like Will Smith. He's an amazing filmmaker. He's a movie star. He's so it's be like watching Cary Grant, and, and but in the movie they just put him in a bucket of feces. And he's like, Why are you doing that to Cary Grant? Don't use him that way. It's weird when Cary Grant was in the Hanging World. That was. Uh, Okay, uh, uh, I'm just going to see how about their other beard guy there. Don't worry, I'm not, I'm going to do that guy. There's a lot of dudes. I know it's kind of hard. Oh, me? Now? Go. Um, the current Amazing Spider-Man film franchise. Yeah. Uh, have you seen one and two? Saw one and two, did punch up on number two. Really? Yeah. Um, sorry. I, I, I tried. I really tried. <laughs> Entirely in charge of Amazing Spider-Man 3. What would you do to make it an awesome movie? Here's what I would do with Spider-Man. A Spider-Man takes place during the daytime, bright primary colors. He is a pathologically positive, optimistic character. That's what drives his enemies insane. Is that he's constantly making terrible jokes at them. They are dark and self-centered and think that the world owes they, they are the wrong hero in this saga, and he's a genuinely good person who is outside of himself and wants to help people. And he does it in bright daylight. All they saw was Dark Knight, Batman Begins, and all this money, everything's got to be dark. No. The reason that made money, they went back to the source material of Batman. Go back to the source material of Spider-Man. bright, happy, primary colors. The other thing I would do with him, if you want to update that guy, He's this young kid, Peter Parker, who just wants to help people out. And he lives in this world with Reed Richards, Reed Tech, Stark Tech, Banner Tech, Duke, everyone's got a tech company, everyone's making money. He should be the Banksy of the Marvel Universe and give his tech away to people and upset the balance of both the heroes and the villains and actually help people out and, and do make that the story. And the villains, all the people like the Rhino, the Vulture, those are just the minions sent out by assholes like Norman Osborn to shut down Banksy. That's how Spider-Man tactic. Good. Right after you do Dinosaurs and vampires. Yeah, well, I'll do that. Yeah. Well, I, I would have like, we're, we're watching the Pat Oswalt sleep of movies in <laughs> if, if, if you could somehow put Spider-Man in the, if you could get the rights so that he could be in an, an Avengers movie, have him, whoever the Avengers are fighting, Spider-Man's in, but he's not on either side. It's like, you Avengers are wrong, too. You're doing a lot, of, you're causing a lot of these problems. And so is S.H.I.E.L.D., and I'm the guy that's going to upset that balance. That'd be really Ground cool. level superhero. Exactly. All right. Thanks. You, sir. Just yell it out. I see you. Okay. Yell it out. I'll repeat it. Um, 
I, yeah, I enjoy it. Okay, next. Someone's ready. Think about it. Think about it. This guy's ready in the back. Um, 
but its inner monologue, unlike Taxi Driver, where it's De Niro's voice, his inner monologue is Lionel Stander, that actor just got this really manly. And you realize his inner monologue is what he wishes he sounded like when he was dealing with people, and, but that's not how he is. And it's so brilliant. It's this, in a weird way, it, it comes back again in Birdman this year. It's that he's got that way more... <laughs> Guys, I've seen I've seen two movies, Dark Crystal and Kenny Rogers Six Pack. I was not the best moderator for this evening. Get uh, Last of Silence. It's it's 80 minutes long. It's on Criterion. It's gorgeous. It is. A, you, I mean, there's there are neighborhoods you probably walk through that you'll watch this movie and go, Oh my God, that city was horrifying. It's great. You love it. Last of Silence. I'll, I'm looking through maybe just one woman who wants to ask a question. Jezebel's watching at this point. There we are, there. Christmas Day, Friday, December 25th, 1998. Oh, God, this is so sad. I know. Patch Adams and Hurley Burley? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> the gentleman ran from the back of the book. Movie love for Christmas Day, 1998. Yeah. Double, double feature. Double feature. Well, no. Here's what I did. I'll say this weird. Two minutes. I know. This first and double feature. Okay. People. All of us. Matt Adams was Christmas Day. Everyone was in town. It was me, Paula Tompkins, Greg Barrett, uh, uh, Laura Milligan. It was like eight of us comedians all got drunk early and went and saw Patch Adams and just watched this movie. We were the only ones in there in the theater for Christmas Day. We were going to see Patch Adams. And everyone, we all made, everyone, we made these crowd noises. And, uh, we, and someone uh, glued a little tiny baby arm to each one. Because remember the poster, it's a little hand went you Saw that at the Sunset Five because I wanted I spent the day just kind of driving around. Los Angeles on Christmas is amazing. The city empties out. And it's fantastic. Look at their open movie theaters and sandwich shops. It's great. It's the best. And I, I, I was I was fine. You know, make a glass of silence. I can shoot. I can shoot a post-apocalyptic movie Christmas Day in LA because there's no one on the streets. And then I went and saw Hurley Burley because I just I, I thought the cast was amazing. Yeah, and then I remember when I was going down the escalator, that if you ever go to the Sunset Five, which is now the Sundance Theater, there these two huge escalators go to it. I was going down the escalator, and I was seeing Burley Burley. It was on Christmas Day, coming up the other escalator by himself in uh, sweatpants and a sweat uh, shirt was uh, Robert De Niro. And, and, he, and yeah, I didn't say, he just, and he gave me this weird stare. Like, and it was, and, and literally, it's just De Niro ascending.
there was a buzz on a Best Supporting Actor nomination for Young Adult. It's weird, I wasn't even in that movie. <laughs> I do remember that. Did you not see that one too, John? I saw that. Oh, wow, okay. I've seen every What was your reaction to that buzz, and how did it change you? Did you buy into it, et cetera, et cetera? I, I did buy into it a little bit. Getting nominated would have been amazing. Um, what I got way more into, though, was the, the uh, campaigning for an Academy Award. You go to these things called tastemaker screenings, where you meet people, you meet Academy voters. I don't know why I'm not in my head. <laughs> well, because um, you've only seen three movies. <laughs> If, if, they, if, if they redo the Dark Crystal, you'll be hosting everyone, I'm sure. Um, and, and I, but I do really, I think I cost myself a nomination because you're supposed to work the room at these places, but I'm such a film buff that I would go to, like, I went to one here in New York and um, Paul Schrader was at it, and all I did was I just kind of buttonholed him at a table and talked with him for three hours and didn't talk to anyone else in the room. And my agents were like, you're supposed to work the room, like, you a blue collar hero, and that's all I wanted to do. So, and then there was another. Um, I went to another one where uh, half of that scene, Robert De Niro on the escalator. No, I didn't. No, I didn't. I just wanted to talk about his movies. I, uh, Catherine O'Hara was there, and I just wanted to sit and talk with her about everything. I just love her so much. And that was when where Al Pacino was there, and I blew off Al Pacino to go talk to Catherine O'Hara. <laughs> So that I blew getting a nomination by being way too into the people who were in the room. That's fair. Buck Henry was in another one, and I just wanted to talk to him, and all he did was he bitched about how much he hated Sam Kinison. Which I love, I love it! Buck had a grudge against Sam. He didn't like Sam Uh Okay, but now we're going to do a lightning round of views. Yeah. And well, the first thing. How or why did you choose the cover? They have a, who's the designer over at uh, Simon Schuster? Who, who designs it? Sanglers and the device there. Boston, amazing. And, and he, uh, they sent me some choices and I just thought this one was so fantastic. Do you know what it is? It, this, is a, this is a 1950s movie called The Colossus of New York. And um, it's, uh, uh, it, it's, it's a terrible science fiction movie, except that the score is by, um, this huge composer that was at the beginning of his career, and all the gowns are by, I think, Givenchy or somebody, also at the beginning of the career, like their first job was, like, go look at the credits, and I, I don't know why I can't remember it, but it's two giants that got their start in this awful scientific movie called The Colossus of New York, so there you go. Although Francis Coppola's first movie was a 3D uh, nudie film called uh, The Bell Hop and the Playboy. 3D? Uh, 3D nude film. No. IMAX? Um, I don't know about IMAX. Here. Uh, <laughs> like to be fair. Yeah. How often would you go alone, and when you brought someone, did they have to, like, obey any rules or anything? How often did you go alone, and when you brought someone, did you, did you make them obey rules? Fred's my, my rules were I could not miss any second of the film. We couldn't come late. We came late. It didn't count. I didn't want to see it. Uh, and then, and then a lot of times, what I I went I went with a lot of friends for a while, but then I realized a lot of times I would absorb them so heavily I didn't want to talk to them. I wanted to go be alone and just dwell on what I'd seen. So after, it didn't take long before me. I just wanted to go by myself. I never took people. Uh, uh, Jen, here. Uh, here. Uh, uh, the only kind of fans were the album before the stand up. 
Thank you. Wondering what those would be for you. Oh, the one that made you fall in love with stand up. Uh, the, the ones that made me want to do stand up. Uh, there's a Jonathan Winters album. I can't remember what it was. My dad had it on a cassette tape. That was a huge one. Um, despite all the, the horribleness of him, uh, uh, Bill Cosby's Revenge, uh, that is a, it's a gateway. Uh, and um, uh, Richard Pryor's. Uh, the two Richard Pryor albums for me were um, uh, Are You Serious? Because that's him transitioning from trying to be a Bill Cosby type to becoming Richard Pryor. It's a fascinating album. And then there's another album that made me want to be a comedian, but now I tell people do not listen to this album if you want to become a comedian because it's, it, it's, it's called Super Digger. And it's so advanced that people hear it. It's such a brilliant album that people, it's the same way that when a band puts out one good album, they go, it's, I think it's time for us to do Rubber Soul. Or we got to do our, like, no, you guys are not going to do, so you, the, the stuff, there's a bit on that album called God Was a Junkie that is so genius, and it makes you think, I can do that, and you can't. You just can't. He is such an, you should listen to it and admire it, but don't then go, I'm going to do what he knows, because you won't be able to do it. You just won't. Just enjoy it, and then leave, get it out of your head. People have been telling me I'm not going to be the next Richard Pryor of my home. <laughs> <laughs> all I can say is I'm just going to keep trying. Well, but I'm saying, like, are you serious shows that he was a human being that had to work on, you know, he, he had to work on his genius, but um, stuff like, the stuff on, on, on Superman is he's beyond genius, and you're not going to do that. It don't start with that one, because it'll make, make you go, it'll either, either, either make you go, I'm going to go on stage and be that complex, and you'll bomb miserably, or you'll just do and go, ah, there's no way I can do that, I can't do that. It's just beyond. So don't listen to it. Listen to it, but know that going in. Don't, don't listen to uh, Rubber Soul. I've never heard of a movie in Oscar. Don't listen to Rubber Soul or, or the Pixies Boss Nova and go, I'll do an album like that. Sure. Yeah, yeah. One of the beautiful things about this book is that whether it's taking in culture or whether it's working on comedy, you see the process of becoming And that it is a process. Yeah. yeah. And, there is, and there is failure. And there are mistakes. Failure, yeah. And you're and you're very candid about them. And I think you're harder on yourself than you need to be. But it's very. I think it's enlightening to anyone who it is whether they're just in comedy or not or any creative endeavor to see that there's a certain amount of downloading. And then, as Matt Jackson says, you stop downloading. Downloading culture is not a waste of time until it becomes a waste of time. Exactly. Yeah. If you're, if you're still in the downloading phase, keep going. But know that, that I guarantee you, if you keep downloading, you'll be given signs to stop and obey them. People will give you signs like, okay, it's time to start reading. You'll know. You'll just you'll sense it. Just keep going. So. Ladies and gentlemen, Pat Hospital. Now leaving Nerdist.com. We need help. The Nurse Writers Panel uh, needs your help to stay free to download by completing a short anonymous survey. It'll take no more than five minutes, and your answers will help match our show with advertisers that best fit the sensibilities of our podcast and its listeners like you. Listeners who complete the survey will be entered in an ongoing monthly raffle to win a $100 Amazon gift card. We promise not to share or sell your email address, and we won't send you email unless you win. Please go to podsurvey.com slash riders 
That's podsurvey, P-O-D-S-U-R-V-E-Y dot com slash writers to take our survey and get a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Uh, I appreciate you helping me and Nerdist out with that.